A few years ago, I was given this uh, little book for Christmas. It's uh, titled The Meaning of Life According to the Great and the Good. Uh, here is the, uh, the introduction, the opening words of the introduction. What is the meaning of life? That question has been asked millions of times for thousands of years, and it stubbornly will not go away. It's a question that most of us first ask as teenagers. It tends to resurface at the most reflective moments of our lives. Its contemplation is often preceded by tragic events or personal crises. Death is often nearby, usually the death of a loved one or the all-too-real contemplation of our own death. Because life is short, the question is somewhat urgent. Our response to it will determine the principles by which we live as well as our goals and priorities in life. It will influence what, if anything, we are willing to fight and even die for. Now look, this is not a great book and it's certainly not the book to turn to when you're looking for the meaning of life, uh, not when you have uh, this book available. Now it's not a great book, but uh, that I think is a smart comment. Listen to it again. Our understanding of the meaning of life will determine the principles by which we live as well as our goals and priorities in life, it will influence what, if anything, we are willing to fight or even die for. What is life all about? Where is history heading? That was a very real and pressing question for the Christians who first read the book of Revelation. For they were having to make crucial decisions about their priorities in life and some of them even had to weigh up what they were prepared to die for. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Revelation was written to a group of churches, seven in all, situated in Asia Minor in first century AD. Each church was under pressure to give up the Christian life. Now, I've put what those pressures were on the handout. We we saw them last week. Each one had a pressure, and so at the end of each of the seven letters in chapters two and three, Uh, Jesus says to him who overcomes, be an overcomer, stand fast against these pressures. That's what this book is about. For different reasons, you see, each church was being tempted to throw in the towel with Jesus. For the Christians in Smyrna, we saw it last week, they were being persecuted, even facing death for their faith. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. They had to be sure that they knew what life was about. Their very life was at stake. So knowing the meaning of life, the point of it all, where it's all heading, knowing the answer to that most basic and fundamental question was crucial. Because it influences what, if anything, we are willing to fight or even die for. The Christians of Smyrna needed to know if their suffering and their potential death would count for something. We may not be facing death. We probably are not facing death for our faith. But like some of the other churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are very real temptations for us to give up the Christian life. There are very real and attractive alternatives, do you see? No, we may not just throw in the towel with Jesus for these alternatives immediately, but we might still be coming to church, but functionally we might, in every, every real sense, give up following Jesus. See, what is the point of giving up time and money and putting energy into following Christ, suffering for him, if it counts for nothing? 
What is the point of making life-changing decisions for Christ, decisions that affect the direction and substance of life, decisions about my career and who I marry and where I live and how I use my time and how I spend my money? What is the point of making those sorts of decisions if Jesus is not the focus and heart of the universe? And especially when making those sorts of decisions will make life harder for me. What is the point of doing that? Would you suffer and die for Christ if you were not convinced that Jesus held the key to the very meaning of life itself? I wouldn't. Would you give substantial amounts of money to gospel ministry or jeopardise a successful career for Christ unless you knew it would count for something? I wouldn't. Would you even choose to be committed to teaching in the Sunday school week by week and so give up the opportunity to go away for a weekend? unless you thought that it would count for something. I know that I wouldn't. Well, look, last week in chapter 4, as John was taking into heaven, we were given a glimpse of the control centre of the universe. And front and centre in heaven, we saw the almighty creator of the universe seated on his throne, and we saw heavenly creatures worship him. It was a great and should be a wonderfully uplifting sight to help our faith soar, a wonderful reminder that God is on the throne. The world is not spiralling out of control. The world is not aimlessly going through a meaningless cycle of seasons and years and decades and centuries. Here we are in September again, the summer's behind. That's what always happens. No, no, no. It is heading somewhere. And now as we move into chapter 5, this chapter is no different. It tells us that, that the Lord is king, but gives us some detail that he is king over the events of history. And we'll begin to see how history is panning out. As we turn to chapter 5, John's focus is very specific. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And so our first point on the handout, if you're still following, a focus on the scroll. See, in John chapter 4, John looked at the throne and then at the one who was seated on the throne and now in chapter 5 he zooms in on the scroll that is in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. The scroll has seven seals and that for now is the focus of the vision Uh, listen to the great drama as John looks at this scroll he says verse 2 I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John is desperate. Can you feel it? He longed for somebody to open the scroll. It may mean absolutely nothing to us at the moment, but just get the feel. He knew, you see, that the scroll contained a secret. And he was so desperate for that scroll to be opened because... This secret he knew would help Christians live the Christian life. Here in the scroll was a secret that would make their suffering worthwhile, that would help them not give up, that they would become the overcomers that they are meant to be. Here in the scroll was a secret that would be worth fighting for and sacrificing for and even dying for. That's why he's so desperate that the scroll is opened. 
What exactly is this scroll and what are the seals? Well, in chapters 6 to 8, the the seven seals are opened. Uh, We'll see next week in chapter 6, as each seal is opened, judgments fall upon mankind. These are events tied up with the way humanity has rebelled against God. Next week we'll see as the seals are opened that wars and famines and plagues and earthquakes are all brought upon the earth. Now listen to this. These judgments are brought upon the earth in order to bring people to repentance, to bring them back to God. So this is the balance as we read chapter 6. The world deserves to face judgments of God. But God brings these judgments to shake people out of their rebellion and to turn them back to him. These are the loving signs of a mighty God. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conference, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. These judgments are to rouse a deaf world into turning back to God. That's why he brings them on the world. Now that understanding should shape the way we look at the world. Indeed, as we look at the devastation in Pakistan at the moment, this will help us to pray Christianly. How do I pray through this immense catastrophe? Well, I pray that these dear people would turn to the Lord God. That's what the Lord longs. These seals then are tied up up with humanity's rebellion against God and are opened in order to bring people back to God. Now the scroll is similar but different and it's in chapters 10 and 11 that we begin to understand the content of the scroll. Now is not the time for a detailed exposition. We're in chapter 5 in case you've forgotten. But uh, listen to how Richard Borkham explains what is happening with this scroll. Again, the, the quote is on the handout. He says the new revelation in the scroll is that Christians' faithful witness and death is to be instrumental in the conversion of the nations of the world. You see, as with the seals, the content of the scroll is about men and women turning to God in repentance and faith. But what is different between the seals and the scroll is that the scroll tells us that the faithful witness of Christians through tribulation will be instrumental in the nations coming to repentance. And so if you just lost me for a moment, let me try and show you why it's significant and why it is such a huge encouragement to have the the scroll open to see the content of the scroll. Why it's such a great encouragement to faithful Christians. Here's the point. The scroll tells us that as Christians faithfully stand firm in their faith, even to the point of death, their faithful witness will be used to see people turn back to Christ. Isn't that an encouragement? Your suffering counts for something. And we've seen it today throughout history. Uh, We've seen it throughout history. We see it today. Uh, In May 2009, I met the Archbishop of uh, Northern Nigeria, Ben Kwashi. Now, those of you who've met him, I see David smiling, but David obviously knows him. Those of you who've met him, he's a fantastic fellow. I met him at a conference that uh, I was speaking at. He was speaking there too. And, and, And it was very humbling to meet him and to hear him speak. Uh, Many of you will know, northern Nigeria is an area of the world where Christians are suffering significant persecution at the hands of Muslim extremists. Archbishop Ben told the conference that when Christians in northern Nigeria make their way to church, they they have stones thrown at them. 
And when they get to church, the first thing they have to do is clean off the human excrement that has been deposited all over the church building by those who hate Christianity. For years in northern Nigeria, Christians have been murdered. Churches have been burned. Archbishop Ben and his wife have suffered physically and have been close to losing their own lives just because they are Christian. And yet, and yet, despite such opposition, the church is growing. How amazing is that? Ben Quashi told the conference I was at that 195 new congregations were planted in four years in his diocese. It rather makes our church planting plans look rather insignificant, doesn't it? One church every two years. 195 new congregations in four years. As a result of that, the diocese became so large that they had to split it and make another diocese. Now two dioceses. And then once the new diocese was born, a further 180 congregations were planted in the next few years. Persecution comes... The Christians are faithful, the church explodes. Many, many more come to faith. That's northern Nigeria. Uh, we could tell the same story in Sudan. Uh, Marjorie Tower told me, uh, after, after I preached this at the 9.15, the same happened in Sudan. When she left Sudan in, whenever it was, in the 50s or 60s, virtually uh, n- 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 uh, no, no Christians there at all. Exploded through uh, through persecution. Robin and Anna Fisher can tell you more. They've been there. They've lived there. They've worked there. Phenomenal growth through persecution. Now that is the truth of the scroll being worked out. As Christians faithfully witness through suffering, people are saved. The nations of the world come to the living God. What an encouragement that is to the Christians John is writing to. John knew that the content of the scroll would spur them on. It would tell them that their suffering will count for something. It would encourage them to remain faithful in their suffering because the Lord would use that to bring others to himself. It would encourage them to stand firm against false teaching and to overcome hypocrisy and apathy and live faithful Christian lives because as they do that, others will be drawn to Jesus. Now isn't that an encouragement to you and me as well today? It is to me. My suffering, should I go through any, draws others to God. And so when I look at the letter to the Laodiceans, I see how their temptation can so easily be ours, but I'm encouraged to overcome. See, do you remember last week how they were tempted to be self-sufficient? Chapter 3, verse 17. They were saying, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. I don't need anything. I don't need God, is what they're actually saying. Now the Laodiceans lived that way and again, as I said last week, I think this is probably the church we're most likely to become like. It is very easy to live like that around here, isn't it? I don't need God, we have everything. We don't need God. So it's very easy to give up on God, you see. When you've got everything. It's so tempting to see money and wealth as all I need. It's very easy to find in money and wealth all the things that I should find in God. Money gives me security. Money gives me my basic daily needs. Money brings me pleasure. Do you see how easy it is to substitute money for God? 
God is the one who should give me my security. He is the one who should give me my basic need. We prayed it. Give us this day our daily bread. Prayed it earlier in the service. He is the one where I should find my pleasure. And so there is actually a temptation every day living in these parts of this part of the world to give up on God, do you see? But this scroll tells me when I give up that temptation, when I give up money, and incidentally the best way to not be have money as a god is to give it away when I give up money when I live sacrificially and am prepared to forfeit things for God my suffering will draw others to God do you see what an encouragement that is to keep going in the Christian life and to overcome those things that would take me away from the Lord suffering in the Christian life counts for something that's the point of the scroll now look, I, I've cheated, I've jumped the gun. All that is actually in the, in the chapters that follow. We're, believe it or not, looking at chapter 5 this morning. But you see, at the beginning of chapter 5, John didn't know its content. He knew that the scroll contained a crucial secret to help Christians know the point of all their suffering, to know how history would unfurl. And so John felt desperate when it was announced in chapter 5 verse 3 that no one in heaven or on earth was worthy to open the scroll or even look inside it. John knew that our understanding of the meaning of life will, as this little book says, influence what, if anything, we are willing to fight or even die for. And that is why John was so desperate when no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And that is why he wept and wept. He wept buckets in verse 4. This really matters. And so from the focus on the scroll comes secondly, and the second point over the handout, a search for one who is worthy. One who is worthy to open the scroll. You see, worthy is a key word in this chapter. You probably saw it as it was being read. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. Verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll. And verse 12, worthy is the Lamb. You see, heaven is looking for someone who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Someone who can direct history's plans, if you like. Notice, heaven is not searching for someone strong enough or or intelligent enough or popular enough but someone who is worthy enough. See, this is a search for someone who we can trust to open the seals and so bring judgment upon the world. Who is worthy of that task? Who can you and I trust enough to put that kind of power in their hands? As Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've seen it throughout history. Power in the wrong hands causes havoc. Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. So who is worthy to bring the judgments of chapter 6 upon the world? Who can we give that sort of power to? John was desperate when he thought that no one could be found. And just as he felt overwhelmed by despair, we read chapter 5, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Finally, in verse 5, that the search is over. And so from the search for one who is worthy, the focus for the rest of the chapter is on 
the worthy one who is found, our third point, verses 5 to 14. See, as you look at verse 5, do you feel the relief? There is one who is worthy, the Lion of Judah from the Root of David. That sentence in verse 5 is packed with with royal language, the language of, of kingship. Judah, the tribe, the royal line from which the Messiah was promised, the Messiah is God's king. The root of David being King David. The lion, well, it's an image of strength and authority, the king of the beasts. The lion of Judah, the Messiah, David, it's all language of kingship. And it's obvious when we think about it, the king of heaven and earth is the one who is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so suddenly there is great excitement in heaven. One has been found who is worthy. But that excitement soon turns to surprise, or may I even suggest reverently to disappointment. For when this lion, this great king, walked onto the stage, verse 6, John saw a lamb. A lamb looking as if it's been slain, no less. A lamb with its throat cut. A sacrificial lamb. Well, Leon Morris, in his excellent Tyndale commentary on Revelation, makes the point, tells us why it's such a surprise. Again, the quote is on the handout there. You see, Leon Morris notes that most nations looking for a symbol of strength choose powerful animals or birds of prey, the Russian bear, the British lion, the American spread eagle and so on. And then he writes this, It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb, and at that a lamb that was slain. So why is this lion a lamb? And why is the lamb worthy to bring judgment on the world and open to us the meaning of all life's struggles? Well, he is worthy because of who he is and what he's done. Firstly, um, who he is. See, in verse 6, we see the lamb is standing in the centre of the throne. Is that a surprise? You see, last week in chapter 4, we saw the Lord God Almighty is the one who's seated on the throne. Now, here is the Lamb, the Son of God, on the throne with the Father. And in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders bow down before the Lamb. They worship him. The Lamb on the throne being worshipped in heaven. It all tells us that the Lamb is God himself, for no one else should be worshipped. It is a blasphemy, of course, to worship any creature. I've put down some references there for you to chase up later. It's blasphemy to worship anyone except God, although we know people do that. But you can be sure in heaven no one except God is being worshipped. So this tells us the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God, the second person of the Trinity. And of course it's obvious when you think about it. The only one who can be worthy to open the scroll is God. The only one who can direct the events of history is God himself. In verse 6 we're told that this lamb, this, this God, had seven horns and seven eyes. And as we considered last week, numbers in the book of Revelation always have a symbolic significance. Seven is the number of perfection. Throughout the Bible, horns are the mark of strength and so the lamb has perfect strength 
and his seven eyes tell us that he is all-seeing and all-knowing. That's why he's worthy of directing history. He knows everything. He can see everything. He's powerful enough to direct everything. The Lamb is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll because of who he is. He is God. And second, he is worthy to open the scroll because of what he's done. Look at verse 9. They sang, that is the 24 elders and these living creatures, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. The lamb is worthy precisely because he died. Jesus is worthy because he laid down his life for human beings around the world. See verse 9, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is through his suffering that men and women become part of God's great plan for the nations. The cross is right at the heart of the history of the world. The cross makes sense of our world. You see here, the cross will continue to be remembered for all eternity. It is right front and centre of history. And the cross sets the direction for believers' lives. See, only Jesus can open the scroll which tells us that our suffering will be instrumental in the redemption of others. Let me explain it like this. If I were to urge you to suffer because your suffering will help others become Christians, you may well turn round to me and say, what do you know about suffering? Why should we listen to you? But you can never say that to Jesus. As we look at the cross, at the lamb who was slain, we look at the one who knows about every aspect of suffering in its most acute form. He knows the pain of physical suffering. He was beaten He had nails driven into his hands and his feet. He suffered physical agony as he hung there on a cross. He knows all about physical suffering. He knows about innocent suffering for he committed no sin and no deceit was found on his mouth. He knows the anguish of of mental and emotional suffering as he was abandoned and betrayed by his friends when he knew he'd done no wrong. He knows the humiliation of suffering as people mocked him and spat on him as he hung there bare in front of them. He knows what it is to suffer spiritually as the father turned away from him and he cried out in an anguished voice, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows all about suffering and so he is worthy to open the scroll and to tell us that our suffering counts for something. But he's also worthy to open the scroll, to direct history in this way, because he suffered. He suffered, and so our own take on history, our approach to history, should be to expect a similar path. As we look to the term ahead, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're focusing, fixing our hearts on things above. What will that mean for us? Is the direction that we are planning to go in the term ahead, all our plans that we've laid out, what are they? Are they anything to do with suffering? Because if they're not, they're not going to be in line with God's way. Don't be surprised when suffering comes, Christian. It's in the scroll which is in the hand of him who sits on the throne. 
And as we close, see what a huge encouragement these words are to any who are prepared to suffer for Christ. There's a lovely detail in verse 8. It's just a detail, but it's there for our reading and learning and encouragement. The golden bowls that hold the prayers of the saints, the Christians. It's just a little detail. It says as you pray, as you plead with God, maybe in your suffering, as you cry out to him, your prayers do reach heaven. They're heard in heaven. And then look at verses 9 and 10, what an encouragement these are. Verse 9 reminds us that the blood of Jesus purchased us for God. Doesn't that tell you that even when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering for Christ, that you are precious to God? And verse 9 tells us that he brought people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. As you suffer, you are part of a worldwide movement that is second to none. You can imagine these little group of churches in Asia Minor. I don't know how many there were, 50, 60, 100, 200, but there would have been thousands of unbelievers against them. And they thought, is that where the action is? No, 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 you are part of what is the worldwide movement that is going to eventually become bigger than than anything else in the world. You're part of something big. See how that encourages you? Verse 10 tells us we are made a kingdom of priests. You can't get any greater privilege than serving God. And in verse 10 we're told that we will reign on earth. So as you suffer... Know that though now we may be walked all over and even crushed by the world in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign. Isn't that an encouragement when you're suffering? And all of this is revealed to us so that we won't just throw in the towel when it gets hard. So Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, to direct the path of history. And that is what all heaven declares. Verse 11. Now I looked, I I love verse 11, just look at the detail in case you skipped over it when it was read first time. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. This is an amazing moment. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. But even that's not the end of the story. See, look how the chapter ends. In verse 13, we're given a picture of the end of time. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. It has to be a picture of the final day because that's not happening now. And it's a wonderful sight, a glorious prospect. All creation, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, every creature praising God, praising the Lord who is on the throne. That's where history is heading. What we've just read is what will happen one day. That is the point of life. And so all of that should determine the principles by which we live as well as our goals and priorities in life. It should influence what we are willing to fight and even die for. Do you see how this vision will make your faith soar? Because it puts everything, and not least of all suffering, in perspective.
Let's pray together. We thank you, 